We're jumping right in today. If you're just joining us, we're going we're to catch you up to speed. We are now in our third week of our series called For Better, For Worse. We're dealing and talking about this topic of marriage, relationships, sex, the whole picture. And we're hoping and asking God that we come out the other side for the better. And so I don't know about you, but I have truly gained a lot from this series, just even my own prep and my own time. God's really been changing my mind and my heart and hopefully making me a better man and husband. I hope that's the case for you as well. I've been really glad to do that. But today we're going to jump into our third week where we're talking about sex, sexuality. We're talking about it within the context of marriage. But broader than that, I want to talk about what the Bible says about sex in general. Uh, a couple of reasons why I want to do that. One, because it's the natural order of what we've been talking about. If you were here a few weeks ago, we kind of set the table and we talked about marriage and we talked about our mindset of marriage and how we have to reclaim and recapture God's intention for marriage. And we discovered this, that God made marriage as a blessing. Amen? God made it as a blessing to humanity, as a blessing to creation. And we unpacked that. If you missed it, you can go back online and watch it. And then last week, we talked about, okay, but within those differences and within those blessings, how do we actually live and flourish together? And so we talked about this thing called submission, mutual voluntary submission. And now this week is where the natural process goes, and we want to talk about sexuality. So the first reason I want to talk about it is that this is a crucial component of a healthy marriage. It just is a major issue within marriage. And so we need to talk about it because what it is, is it's a physical picture of the intimate union that you have in your marriage. And it is spiritual, it's a spiritual practice that both comes from and works towards a flourishing marriage. So I want to talk about it for the sake of your marriage. Second reason I want to talk about it is because you indicated on your survey that we need to talk about it. We did it, for those of you who don't know, we ran a survey and over 600 of you people who are married took the time to do that and we appreciate that. And we got all kinds of interesting data back, but one of the things we discovered and we asked you was, how would you rate your sexual uh, experience with your partner? How would you rate it and, and we, from one to five, uh, from not satisfied at all to very satisfied and 50% were satisfied or very satisfied and 50% were unsatisfied. And so we need to talk about that. We need to go there. Another, another stat we got from the, from the survey is that 65% of our church indicated that they have sex once a week or less. And uh, I'm going to actually, I know we're going to have some fun today and we're going we're gonna to just kind of enjoy this. But at the same time, I want to make a case why this matters and why you actually, as your pastor, I'm going to tell you married couples, you need to have sex more. Some husbands are like, I came the right day. It's going to be good. We're going to go there, though. We're going to answer some questions. But here are some comments that you made on, on the survey. Some of you asked or you said this, I don't know what intimacy means to my spouse. I don't know what it means. What's intimacy? How do I create intimacy? Uh, one person said, neither of us are satisfied with our sex life. It doesn't live up to our expectations. One person said, I'm not sure how God feels about sex. What am I supposed to think about it? Uh, one person said, or actually many people said, are we normal? Should, how much should we be having sex? How, what is the way we're supposed to think about it? And so it was a common concern on the survey. In fact, indicated of all the struggles, we dealt with the number one struggle last week in communication and conflict, but the number two thing that you guys identified was the area of sexuality, and so we need to talk about it. But the third reason I really want to stop here this week and talk about it is because we as the church and as believers cannot afford to be silent on the topic. And there has been, I grew up in church, and I grew up in a generation where the pastor did not talk about such things. 
That was a taboo topic. That was something that we didn't talk about, and, and, and we just didn't talk about. What's happened because of that, because the church has been silent on that, Christian couples have been left to try to figure this out on their own, and maybe they aren't experiencing what God intended for them. And then a large group of people have been left to determine what sexuality is based on their own urges, their own preferences, their own desires, or what culture tells them. And so now we're living in the days where, frankly, the byproduct of that is very evident and apparent. So we as the church need to deal with it because in not dealing with it, it's led to within the church ignorance about sex, dissatisfaction, confusion, closet sexual issues, addiction, infidelity. And ultimately, the church more than ever is easily influenced by what culture says sex is. And so we as believers need to open the word of God and we need to ask God, what does your word have to say on the topic? We cannot any longer be silent on the issue. So we need to talk about it because frankly, if we don't, there's lots of chatter about it everywhere else. And if, you're, if the church isn't talking about sex, you're getting your opinion formed somewhere and somehow else. And so we as believers have got to open the word and we've got to talk about this. So we're going to dive right in. You should have got a note guide when you came in. And I'm going to fly through this and we're going to cover some ground today. Uh, but as we do this, I want to just again reiterate something I said the first week. And that is this. That everything that you hear from this stage and everything that we as a church kind of hold fast to is tethered to a biblical perspective, a biblical worldview. That what I'm presenting to you today are not my opinions. They are not, you know what, my I'm not Dr. Phil. I said that week one. What we're doing as a church is we are holding out what the Bible says, like we do with every topic, and we're allowing it to speak in to us. Here's a lot of time you think of, of the Bible as something that you're supposed to read. Well, it is, but it's also something you're supposed to let read you. And so we need to hold our sexuality out to the Bible, and we need to ask God, okay, what do you say about this area of my life? And then your choice is this. If you are a believer and you are someone who says, I follow Jesus, your job is to say, God, I receive your word and I submit myself to it. If you're not, you're open to your opinion. You can come by that however you want. But for those of us who are believers, our job is to come under what the Bible says. Amen? So that's what we're going to do. So if you have opinions that are contrary to mine, if you want to argue about the Bible, you can come visit me. But if it's not about the Bible, don't talk to me. I don't want your emails. All right? All right. <laughs> it's been fun already. All right, number one, we're going to jump right through. I've got three kind of observations about sexuality that I want you to kind of wrap your head around and your mind around. The first is this, and we need, I need to press on a myth. I need to confront a myth. And the myth is this. That God and sex should not be held in the same conversation and sentence. I need to confront a myth that says that sexuality is not something that is really to be mentioned in the same breath as being Christian, mentioned in the same breath as following Jesus. When you think about God and you think about Jesus, you don't necessarily want to think about sex in the same in the same way. But here's, that's a huge myth. Here's the first thing I have got to press upon us as a church when it comes to sexuality. Well, I have to reclaim the space. Here's number one, if you're taking notes on your note guide. Sex is a gift from God. I thought I'd get more amens than that. Anyway, <laughs> I'll take a drink, let you think about that. You guys are uptight, I think. You're going to loosen up. That's what's going to happen. We're going to have fun. Listen, who should be nervous right now, you or me? Yeah, exactly. 
I want to confront a myth, this religious myth, that God and sex should not be found in the same sentence. Now, especially for people who grew up within the church or maybe you grew up around the church, the idea of sexuality is something that has been suppressed and put aside. And, And it's one notch beyond just being private about something that frankly is private. It's something that's highly personal. But the church, to a fault, has been silent on the issue so that sexuality has become something that's quite taboo. Within the church, we don't talk about it. It seems like it's something you separate your spirituality and your sexuality. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible actually talks of sex all through it. And I'm going to show you some. But I need to just deal with this idea that, you know what, like great sex and being a Christian aren't the, aren't, you know, shouldn't go hand in hand. I got to confront that myth, like the myth that says, like, you know what, that Christians only have sex to make babies. It's only in the dark, and they don't call it the missionary position. It's just sex position. That's it. That's all we do. And each Christian, I told you you're going to get loose. Each Christian, each Christian, you know, only does it, you know, they they have two kids. It's been twice, right? Like that's that. (laughs) That's the idea. That's like the unspoken thing. We don't just don't talk about it. And, and that, that nothing could be further from the truth. And what it's, what's caused is this result that sex is dirty. That sex is this carnal, animalistic, impulsive thing that is inherently sinful, that it's somehow dirty. This, there's a word for that, in fact, that it's called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was something that was prevalent. We're going to read in 1 Corinthians here in a minute. But it was something that was prevalent in the first church where early Christians were being influenced by Plato and and Platonism, Neoplatonism, where the idea of matter was inherently evil. And so they were starting to think, okay, maybe if matter is evil and spiritual things are good, then sex cannot be a good thing. And so what's happened is this in the church, this separation of sexuality, where, you know what, like sex is this kind of animalistic thing that should be suppressed and not talked about, and that your spirit is angelic. And somehow there is this big paradigm between being angels and animals, but the Bible says we're neither. We're humans. And we have been created with a body and a spirit. And here, get this. I want to free some people up in your mind. Maybe, you're, maybe you were brought up just never to talk about this. Sex belongs to God. It is something that he made. It is something that he designed. It's something that he gifted humanity with. It absolutely belongs to him. Here's a fact. If, 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 if you believe that God is the creator of everything... Like, just do basic deduction and think about this, that you would have to conclude that he designed the human body, he designed human capacity, he designed human anatomy, he created humans with sexual capacity, he created humans as sexual beings. It was his idea when he made men this way, it was his idea when he made women that way, and it was his idea to put those desires and longings within the heart of humanity. God did it. It's not wrong. Those urges aren't wrong. I think the church hasn't known how to deal with it, and then parents don't know how to deal with it. And so we just, I mean, I'm, I'm getting there. I have a nine-year-old daughter, and I'm starting to think, okay, how do I coach her in this? Because I don't want to talk about it with her, right? And so what we do is we avoid the topic, and then it becomes this maybe elephant in the room that, you know, they have to discover on their own and come up with their own ideas. But here at church, we've got to reclaim and recover the fact that sex belongs to God. It belongs to him. He made it, and he made it for a reason. I got a couple of reasons on your note guide. First reason is this, and it's the obvious one. God made sex for procreation. 
It's a magnificent thing when you think about it. Like, I mean, sometimes you just don't think about it. But when you think about the miracle that is birth, like, what? We come together and we do that and it makes a person? Like, that's incredible. God's all over that. You talk to some physicians and stuff. Like, when they think about that and you think about just the, the, the miraculous that has to happen in order to conceive. And then the, the miracle of birth, it's unbelievable. God did that. And God made sex for procreation. It says it right in the Bible, Genesis 1, uh, verse 28. After God created the humans, the created man, he said this, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. God commanded them to have sex and make more babies. In fact, that's the first commandment in the whole Bible. Hey, guys, make more. First thing he said to humanity. He actually commands this. So at base level, as a Christian, you have to understand that sex was God's idea. It was his design. It was something he came up with. It is something he ordered. And so he purposed it. He made sex for procreation, but there's much, much more to be said than that. I mean, the church has gone that far in the past, I believe. Like, like we, we haven't, you know, purported any kind of mythology about, you know, babies come from storks. I mean, obviously, we've figured out how to make more. Our church has been growing just alone on parents having babies. It's been amazing. You've got that first command down pat. It's awesome. Well done. Just doing my duty before God, right? Like, yeah. We've got that far, but here's the thing I want to I press on for a few minutes today. Sex wasn't just made for procreation. Sex was made for pleasure. And God made it for pleasure's sake. Think about that. Like, again, I want to bridge this gap between their sex and their spiritual stuff. No. Pleasure, the pleasure of sex was God's idea. He made it. It was his design. He designed it to be enjoyed, to be an incredible experience. He designed attraction. He designed romance. He designed orgasms. He, it was his idea. Yes, I said that in church. We're going all the way. Because I I, I've got to burst this thing that you don't talk about that in church. The Bible has something to say about every piece of the human existence, especially something so critical as this. See, God made it for pleasure. He made it for pleasure. If it, think about this. Like, just, just go biology. Like, if it was just for procreation, do you not think God could have come up with some other delivery method? Like, why? If, if, if sex wasn't designed for pleasure, then why isn't it, like, I don't know why I think of this example, but may, why didn't he make it, like, so every August, you know, men are, men's hair is like dandelions, and it blows off, and it gets caught in the follicles of women, and it, I know I'm so weird. I'm just saying. Like, like he, didn't, he didn't have to create this, thi this thing called sex where there's pleasure associated with it. Could have been a variety of things. He's God. He could do whatever he wants, but he chose this thing. And it's more than just procreation. God gave sex for the sheer sake of pleasure. He gifted mankind with that as pleasure. It's it, it, just for that purpose. I mean, beyond the purpose of procreation, he gave it for pleasure. Look at this. Genesis chapter 2. If you flip the page, if you were in Genesis 1... Look what he says. The Bible says that God made a woman from the rib of the man. We talked a couple weeks ago about how God saw that it wasn't, fit, wasn't good for the man to be alone. And he made one fit for him. And then he made him from the rib. And then look what it says next. At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. 
She'll be called woman. Whoa, man. Because she was taken from man. That the exclamation point in the, in the verbiage, again, the language is different here. It's different than just procreation. Genesis 1.28, be fruitful and multiply. This is, the, this is the task of sexuality. But this is actually just the sheer joy of how taken he was by his wife. Like right there in the first account, like we see this attraction. We see passion. We see it. And then it says this in the next verse. It says this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. And now the man and the woman, the man and his wife, were both naked and felt no shame. Like, this is the setup in the whole Bible right here. Like, God ordered sexuality. Some of you are looking at me like, yeah, okay, you're reading. Maybe you're reading too. That's not that literal. Like, maybe they were naked, but they didn't do it. I don't know. Like, okay. Look, let's keep going. Let's keep going. Look at this. i got some commands in the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 24. This is a command from God. Watch this. If God doesn't value sex, then why is it all through the Bible? When a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out with the army nor be charged with any duty. He shall be free at home one year and shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. His job is to stay home for a year and please his wife. Some of you are like, I don't want to follow Jesus like that. Like... This is Old Testament, but okay, so you're looking at me like, okay, well, yeah, but maybe that means taking care of the house. Yeah, it does, but also it means about proximity. He needs to be close and there for his wife. Let me, let me give something more literal. All right, I'm going to read something from the Bible that, honestly, I was in an airport Tuesday night, and I was there with Pastor Dell. Our plane was delayed, and he went off by himself, and I'm reading this chapter from the Bible, and there were people walking by me on my laptop, and I felt like I was doing something I shouldn't be doing. Like I was like looking over the laptop, reading the Bible. Watch this. You don't believe me. Song of Songs. Chapter... Did I just hear a groan? I just heard a groan. Oh. Song of Songs. I'm telling you, I just want some of you to, to bridge the gap between your sexuality and your spirituality because it's all through the Bible. Look at look what this says. This is a picture not just of passionate love between a man and a woman, but it's also Song of Songs is a picture of God's love for us in the romance. It's a beautiful book that you, you should really spend some time reading. But just read this. Like, again, I'm just trying to like get the whole religious stuffiness out of our minds and start thinking rightly about sexuality that God gave for pleasure. Look at the, listen to this language. I don't even know if I can get through it. How beautiful are your sandaled feet, O queenly maiden. This is like sweet, sweet love and talk coming up right here. Guys, I don't know if this is going to work for you when you go home tonight and watch, but uh, your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a skilled craftsman. I love it. Your navel is perfectly formed like a goblet filled with mixed wine. Between your thighs lies a mound of wheat with bordered, bordered with lilies. Don't say that to your wife. A mound of wheat. That's not hot. That's not hot. Maybe, maybe to them. Maybe in that day. That's not hot. No, I don't think. <laughs> your breasts are like two fawns. Twin fawn gazelles. This is so hard to read in public. I really underestimated how hard this would be. I was like, oh, no big deal. You just got up and read it. <laughs> Your neck is as beautiful as an ivory tower. Your eyes are like the sparkling pools of Heshbon by the gate of Bathrabim. I don't, I don't know if that, that line's going to work for you guys. You may want to like bring it something in a more modern context. Your nose is as fine as the Tower of Lebanon. I just don't know of a woman that wants her nose commented on. Just, 
Curl your nose. Oh. <laughs> That's a sweet nose. <laughs> your head is as majestic as Mount Carmel, and the sheen of your hair is radiates with royalty. The king is held captive by its tresses. Oh, how beautiful you are, how pleasing, my love, how full of delight. You are slender like a palm tree, and your breasts are like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree and take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like grape clusters, and the fragrance of your breath like apples. May your kisses be as exciting as the best one. I'm going to stop there. You get the idea. That's the Bible, y'all. I'm just reading the Bible. I'm not, it's not anything sensual. Well, it's sensual, but it's the Bible. It's God's. I know we're having fun and we're laughing, but I've got to just draw you into this reality that you not only is it okay to think about God and your sexuality in the same sentence, it's actually important and actually critical that you do. That your sexuality is something that God has created, and we get into so much trouble and the world has gotten into so much trouble in this area because what we are tempted to do is separate the two. That there's this kind of animal instinct in us and that sexuality, if it's going to be truly enjoyed, it's kind of, it's, it's this taboo thing and it's, it's secretive and you don't, you don't want to talk about it. But in actuality, God created sex. And Christians, we have got to understand that, that sexuality in marriage is to be enjoyed before God. Like it says at the end of Genesis, they were naked and unashamed before God. What happened after sin came in? They covered themselves and they hid from who? From God. Sexuality was designed by God, for God, for procreation and for pleasure. So you've got to get that in your mind first and foremost. When we think about sex, we've got to recover what it is. It belongs to God. And Christians, we have got to have a theological understanding of what sex is. So that's number one. Number two, are you ready? All right, all right. East, you with me? You lost me at breasts and palm trees, Pastor. Number two, we're going to get a little, a, little, a little further in here. Number two, sex is for healthy marriages. If you're taking notes, sex is for healthy marriages. And I actually have a double entendre here. It's, I'm going to break this up into two parts. First is this, that when I say sex is for healthy marriage, I have to say this. This is what the Bible says, and I want to stand on the word and come under it, that sex is reserved for marriage. So sex is for marriage. That's what the Bible says. It's absolutely put within the context and confines, and we talked about it week one, of covenant. That outside of that is actual sin. The Bible calls it sin. The Bible's clear about relationships. It prohibits sex outside of the marriage covenant. Now, I know we all are prone, and we live in a season of life and a season in history where we want to define sexuality. But again, this is the, where the rubber meets the road as a believer. Do you submit yourself to what this book says, or do you submit yourself to what Cosmo says, or what your urges say, or what your history says? That's the choice you have to make. But what the Bible says is that sex is reserved for a man and a woman committed in a marriage covenant. And, and there are no, there's nothing outside of that when it comes to sex. Biblically speaking, any sexual intercourse or encounter outside of a married relationship is what the Bible calls sexual immorality. It's called sin. The Bible says that it's one man 
one woman married for life in a covenant, and it's, it, doesn't, it, says, it says that's when sex is to be enjoyed. So it's not I'm going to be married or we hope to get married or it's just sex. It's not, uh, it's not any other combination other than after vows have been taken. That's when sex is allowed according to the Bible. That's what it defines it as. The Bible is clear on this commandment. It says in the Ten Commandments, it says don't sleep with your neighbor's wife. It says uh, later on in the New Testament, each man should have one wife. And I'm going to get to the, to the good part about that in just a second. But you, I've got to establish this. Now, already, and I, 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 my heart goes out because I know there's a bunch of people here who aren't married. And I just established this reality that, okay, sex is this beautiful, awesome thing that God has given for, for pleasure. And then there's a bunch of people here that, by definition, in the Bible, basically the Bible says sex is off the table for you. That you can't have it, whether maybe you're homosexual, maybe you're single, maybe you're divorced, whatever it is, that you're not married, and the Bible would say, no sex. And so the question that you probably are asking and that my heart goes to you too, that you would say, okay, well, what about for the rest of us? Like, are, are married people more blessed than people who are single or people who maybe can't have sex? Maybe you're in a marriage that one of your, one of the spouse, one partner is unable to because of some physical reason. You know, what does the Bible have to say about singleness and people who can't have sex? Am I really missing out? Like, how does that work? And I would just say a couple things, and I want to read a scripture. The Bible is super clear that sex is something great. But the Bible is also clear that sex is not everything. Sex is not everything, and I would even press further for our culture in our day, sex is not you. The Bible has nothing in it about your sexual identity. In fact, you aren't identified by your sexuality at all. Sex is a gift that God has given to participate in, but you are not identified by your sexuality. The Bible is open about sex, it celebrates it in its given content, but it says nothing about one having to have sex. And actually it goes further than that and it says that there is special grace for a believer who doesn't have sex. There's special strength for people who are single. There's special grace. Look what Paul says. Paul the Apostle. If you have a Bible, we're going to end here for the rest of our time. I'm going to be in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. But the Apostle Paul, the greatest, the greatest evangelist that's ever lived, he, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. I mean, talk about someone who just did it right before God. He was single. From, all we, from, from what we know, he was single, or at least he ended up single. We're not totally sure of his story, but he goes in here to say, and he's speaking now in Corinthians, he's speaking to the Corinthians who were completely messed up in this area. There were some people who were saying, you can just have sex with whoever you want. At one point, he refers to incest happening within the church. There's homosexuality, there's prostitution all happening within the church, and Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians. But he also, and I want you to see this right now, he addresses singleness, and I want you to see what he says. Because some people were talking about not having sex at all and saying that sex is bad. And he brings back into center here. But look what he says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7. He says, I wish that everyone were single, just as I am. He's saying, another translation says, it is good to be single. It's good. Don't, and I just want to press on this for a second. Some of you who are single or you're in a season where you can't have sex, do not believe the lie that you are missing out on anything. If you belong to Jesus, he gives you everything you need and that there is a special grace in each season. 
And if you are not in a season where you are married and you get to enjoy that, God has some other blessing and some other strength for you to enjoy. He is a good God and he gives grace where and when you need it. So you do not need to believe that lie that says, okay, yeah, but it's such a huge part of me and I have to do it. No, you don't. Paul says actually it's good. In fact, he argues it's even better to be single. And I know I haven't had time to get in on the topic of singleness, and I'd love to do a whole talk on it sometime. But I really don't want to leave here with having single people feel like, okay, great. You know, now I'm not allowed to have sex, and I want to have it more than ever. Like, I, that's, not, that's not what you should feel right now. That there's grace for you in the season that you're in. Or maybe you're, maybe you're, you're, you're not married yet, but you're in love, and you're going to get married. There's grace for you to hold off until you're married. Look what Paul says, I wish everyone were single just as I am, yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. So I say to those who aren't married and to the widows, it's better to stay married just as I am. You See, he just presses on them to say that being single is not a disadvantage. That God actually will give you grace in your season. And you needn't leave this place thinking, oh man... No, God actually gives you special grace in your season. Maybe you're in a season of marriage where one, of your, one, one partner is unable to have sex. Well, I believe in a God who is exceedingly abundantly able to provide all that you ask or imagine, and he can bless you in a multitude of other ways. It is a failure and a fallacy to say that sex is everything. It's not. It's something. We're talking about that, but it is not everything. And the world would have you believe that it's everything. And that you have to stay true to those impulses and who you are sexually. No, no, the Bible says nothing about that. Let, 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 let God define who you are. I want to read and keep going here. If, but uh, if you are going to take seriously what the Bible says about sex, let me just say this again, because I remember before I was married, I was looking, you know, the, the question is how close can I get to the line? What can I do? You know, if you, I'll just say this. You have to understand that sexual intercourse is reserved for married Men and women. That's it. And that's what the Bible says. And anything outside of that, I don't care what your arrangement is, if you're, if you're participating in sex, it's sin. And you need to repent. Second thing is this. Marriage, so sex is reserved for marriage, but now let's flip it all the way. Sex is required for marriage. Sex is required for marriage. If you're still taking notes, I don't think those blanks are there, actually. Sex is required for marriage. Get this, that on the same, in the same vein that, that God actually prohibits or condemns sexuality, sexual intercourse outside of marriage, he commands it within marriage. A bunch of guys are like, yes. <laughs> I got you guys. Here we go. Now, I know there's some women that will thank me. Let's read this, and then, and then I'll unpack it. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Now, regarding the questions you asked me in your letter, again, he's still referring to what he's talking about in chapter 6, it's good to abstain from sexual relations. Again, he says it's good. Just get that in your mind. It's good not to have sex. God will give you grace. It's good to be a virgin. Like some of you, maybe you're here, you're a virgin, and like the culture would tell you you're missing something or you're a subclass citizen. It's good to be a virgin. It's good to hold yourself for God. It's good to not have sex, he says. Now look what he says. He's saying this to married people. But because there's so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. Whoa. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs. It is his duty, it says. This is the Bible. You know, 
at your service, ma'am. Like, <laughs> the husband should fulfill his wife's needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. I, I, there's a bunch of guys that like struggle with memorizing scripture. Here's a good place to start. <laughs> First Corinthians seven three, the wife should. <laughs> You know, like, have that memorized. It's on the magnet on the fridge. <laughs> the wife gives it. This is such a good piece of scripture. Just saying. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to the wife. We talked a little bit about that last week in mutual voluntary submission. That's what this looks like sexually. Watch this. Verse 5. So do not deprive each other of sexual relations. It's a commandment. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so that you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Saying, unless God leads you to fast sex, do not deny each other sexual relations. The Bible commands sex. Can I get an amen? Like, I feel like preaching tonight. Oh, the Bible says. Like, like. <laughs> My wife will never want to do that with me again if I do that. <laughs> I'm going to stop there. I just had a, something in the back of my mind say, you're not going to recover from that. Uh, do not deprive each other of sexual relations. The husband gives authority to the wife. The wife gives authority to the husband. So what's that saying? Again, mutual voluntary submission. We talked about it last week. About trying to serve one another and actually laying down what you need. So, so trying to serve one another. So, so meeting each other's needs. So maybe generally, generally speaking, this isn't all married, married couples, and I've seen this in my own experience in counseling. Some, sometimes the woman wants it more than the man, but generally I would say eight to nine times out of ten, it's the other way around. But it says, like, you need to meet their needs. So here, here's, here's something. It's okay. You know what? Wives, it's okay to just do it for their benefit. That's what it's saying. Now, he wants you to want him, but he won't, he'll take your charity. Like, he'll take it. <laughs> Told you we're getting real. You serve one another in this area. So what are some reasons God gave sex or God commands sex within marriage? A couple of reasons I can pull out of here. One, protection. If you're taking notes, protection. Uh, it says, like, since there is so much sexual immorality or so much sexual temptation that you actually need to have sex to avoid sexual temptation. Let me just say this. Like, if you're a married couple and you are not having regular sex, that the temptation quotient rises. And largely, I would say, like, wives, if you're not having sex with your husband a lot, a lot of the time, he's probably prone to or getting it somewhere else. Now, is he cheating on you? Lord forbid, I hope not, but it's likely he's thinking about other things. There's pornography, masturbation, all these things become a huge fight for your husband, and you serve him in this way. And I, I'm not trying to be crude or crass. This is, this is real talk, and this is real stuff, that sexual temptation is huge. And so one of the ways, the Bible even says it, so that you will not be swayed into sexual immorality, you come together. You relieve that. So there's protection. Uh, funny, kind of, cool, kind of a cool quote. Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, Martin Luther, the father of Reformation, the guy who like split off from the Catholic Church and made Protestantism. He was asked one time, how many times a week should you have sex? And he said, I believe two keeps the tempter away. Anyway. <laughs> Thought that was a good quote. Like, all right, 
Two keeps the tempter away. That's good. But you do it for protection. Another thing is this, letter B, it's for unity. God commands sex as a mechanism to actually bring forth unity. Here is something I know from experience. It is really hard to be sexual in a marriage and be fighting. Right? To actually have sex and to have good sex and to come together that way, there has to be a certain degree of emotional and relational equity to get that far. Am I right? And one of the first things that often goes when marriages start to deteriorate is the coming together. Well, God didn't just give sex as the overflow of intimacy, but he also gave it to produce intimacy. And then it produces unity. It actually makes you, like, if you have in your mind that we're supposed to be having sex as a married couple, then it makes you have to do the inventory on the health of your marriage. Okay, it's been weeks. Maybe we're not that healthy. Maybe there's some underlying issue that we need to work out so that that comes back. God actually gave sex as a mechanism to produce unity within the marriage. He designed it that way. Now, you've got to understand, when it comes to serving each other, both genders come at sexuality in different ways. For men, sex, sex is a doorway to intimacy. That if you want to be into, intimate with a man, women, have sex. Like, if you want him to open up and talk, have sex, and then he won't shut up. Right? Flip it. For women... Intimacy is the doorway to sexuality. God designed, again, we talked about this all every week, God designed these differences to complement one another, to draw one another closer together into cooperation and mutual voluntary submission. It's that way on purpose. He did it to draw unity. Sex creates this heightened relational IQ is what it does. And it's really hard to have a healthy sexual relationship and a terrible emotional relationship. Anybody ever found that? They, 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 they work in tandem. And the people who have the best sexual relationships probably have the best marriages and the best relationships to begin with. So God gave it for unity. It's a brilliant design that keeps drawing us deeper into intimacy. So, and then ultimately intimacy, letter C. God gave it for intimacy. It was designed to draw the couple closer. It's the mechanism that for, forces a deeper connection together, not just physically. Here's a quote if you, if you, if you want to take notes. Sex was designed to both force and fuel deeper intimacy in the marriage relationship. To not have sex is to actually drift apart. Figuratively, literally, emotionally, spiritually, phys physically, to not have sex is actually the drifting apart of your marriage. So it, sometimes it's out of the overflow. Sometimes it's, it's, it's out of the necessity that, you know what, we need to come together this way. and We need to make it a priority. Sometimes it fuels intimacy. Sometimes it's from intimacy. But it serves as this connect point to both of those realities. You understand what I'm saying? Is this making sense? Seven people think this makes sense. All right. East, I hope you're hanging with me. So the Bible commands sex within marriage. So I, I've, got, I've got three do-its here on your, on your uh, note guide. So the Bible commands sex within marriage really quick. I know we're not going to get into like anything too, you know, helpful other than I want to answer a few questions. And next week, if you come next week, we're going to do a live panel. It should be fun. We're going to answer just maybe more ground level questions that I don't have a chance to get to. But really quick, uh, when, I, when you get to like how much, when, where, how, let's answer some of those questions. First is this, like, like how, you know, when, I would say this, do it consistently. Do it consistently. If you're married, you should have consistent sex. I would even go so far as to say you should schedule it. 
Oh, don't even, I'm, I'm pressing on that. <laughs> Do not believe that if you think that sex is just the overflow of passion, you misunderstand what sex is. Sex also creates passion. And sometimes you got to, uh, oh, you got to be careful with language here. Sometimes you got to jumpstart the car. Right? Listen, can we be real in church? If you think that the only time you have to have sex is because you feel like it, you're never going to feel like it. God actually gave sex to be the very thing that draws you closer and creates more passion. And sometimes we just look at it as it's the response. And, if I, and so you got to, you know, it's got to, when the, when the stars align or it's his birthday. No. Listen, your marriage, and again, I know there's grace for some of you. You're in a season of life where maybe one partner can't, and God gives you grace. But for those of you who are both healthy, and the only issue is schedules and whether you're in the mood, you need to do the work of scheduling that. I'm not joking. That it is a crucial component of being married. Paul says, do not deprive one another of sexual intimacy. And so you, maybe you need to schedule it. you got to put it on the calendar. I will say, I can't speak for the ladies, but if it's on the calendar, that's a good thing, not a bad thing for most of the dudes. Here's something I know to be true. If I'm running the marathon and I don't know how long it's going to be till I hit the finish line, uh, I, I may quit. But if I know i got two more miles, two more miles, I can go. If he knows Thursday night's coming, he can hold it down. All right? I'm helping some people right now. You laugh at it. I'm serious. Do it consistently. Schedule it. Do it often. Uh, you know, someone was asking in the survey, how much? Like, how often do we do it? How much is too much? Well, Martin Luther says twice a week keeps the tempter away. I would say that you do it to the point that both parties are feeling fulfilled and satisfied. Do it so that you both can click four or five on how satisfied are you sexually. You should do it that much. If that's once a week and you guys are both like, yes, I love you, that's all I need, then you're good. But if it's, if it's not, if, if one, of the, one party is like, no, I, I, we need to do it more, then, then you need to do it more. So do it often. I'm helping some people right now. Like someone's going to be going home, did you hear what pastor said? <laughs> How do you do it? Do it with variety. Here's, here's, a, here's a big question that gets asked. And I, again, I'm trying to help some people. What's okay within the marriage relationship, right? I mean, l listen, we need to talk about this because sex is everywhere and we're allowing culture to define what's okay and what's not okay. And not only does it, it, it twist how we think about sex, but then we think about that, okay, that's got to be wrong and that's got to be wrong. So people ask the question, what's okay within the marriage? Like, how do, you, how do you know what's okay and what's inappropriate? What's sinful? Here's what I would say. Within the marriage... And exclusively within the marriage, between one man and one woman, so there's no other party, there's no pornography, there's no, you know, thinking you're someone you're not. It, it, here's, here's, a, here's something that can help you. If it withdraws from intimacy, if fulfilling that pleasure area withdraws from intimacy together, then you're probably in the danger zone. If one person is left feeling like, I don't like that, then you're probably in the danger zone. That's a good test. If both parties are, you know what, we're okay with this, within the marriage, if it's just between the two of you, go nuts. It's all good. Really. Like the Bible doesn't prescribe, like truly. It's, 
It's not missionary only in the church. Just saying, like, you go crazy. Anyway, y'all weren't ready for this today, were you? you he's like, he's going to talk about sex. You didn't know I was really going to talk about sex, did you? All right, I'm going to wrap up. But number three, this is super important. I want to press in on that. But that's going to help some of you marrieds that you've got to understand. Sex is condemned outside of marriage. It's commanded within marriage. God gave it as a gift for marriage to actually produce health and become from the overflow of health. Number three is this. i got to hurry. My time's almost up, and I really want to hit this. Number three is this. Sex is a spiritual encounter. Sex is a spiritual encounter. I have three quick thoughts on this. Number one is that you, you have to believe this. Do not believe the myth, especially some of you who are single or maybe some of you who are married and you're tempted to step out or you're looking at porn. Do not believe the myth that it's just sex. Because that is common language today, isn't it? It's just sex. It's so interesting to me that we live in a time where sexual identity is so idolized, and yet the actual practice of having intercourse and having sex is completely minimized. The world has it reversed. Sexual intercourse is a spiritual reality that cannot be removed from your physicality. This is why so many people are hung up on their sexual identity. Because sex is the, the physical act most in tune and most intimate with your spirit. That to actually come together sexually is the most connected thing you can do with your body to your spirit. And so you cannot believe the lie or the myth that it's just sex, as long as no one gets hurt, as long as we're two consenting adults, that is a lie. That there are huge spiritual implications to having sex. This is why God ordered sex to happen within the marriage covenant, because it's the only relationship that is strong enough to hold the power that is sex. Do not believe the lie that it's just sex. Here, here I, I would ask you some questions just as you think about this. If sex is just physical, then why is it that when a child is sexually abused, they carry that for their whole life? Like, why do they care? If it's just physical and if it doesn't touch their spirit, then why? Why do they care? It's because your spirit is connected to your body. And when you have sex, when, when your sexuality is involved, your spirituality is intimately connected to it, and you cannot detach the two. Why is it that when a woman is raped, it is so much more damaging than if she's just mugged or beat up? If sex is just physical, it's because it's not. Why is it that most people's greatest regrets and burdens and the things that they are most ashamed of in their history are sexual? If it's, just spirit, if, it's just, if it's just physical, if it's just sex, then, then why is that the case? It's because sex is not just physical. It is a spiritual reality that is connected to your inmost being. And when you have sex, you open your spirit up. Even if it's a one-night stand, even if it quote-unquote meant nothing, it didn't mean nothing. There is no such thing as meaningless sex. And I... You, you were here for the first part of the sermon. I'm not trying to be some old Bible thumper. Says, Don't ever have sex. That's not what I'm saying. I want you to understand that when you have sex, what is happening? It opens your spirit up and it connects you to that person. Your spirit becomes intertwined. The old preachers used to call it soul ties, that you're actually connected in spirit to that person you give yourself to that way. It is a critical mistake to think of sex as something that is just physical. 
Maybe some of you are, are, are single or, or wherever you're at. Maybe you're married and you're just tempted. Do not short sell how potent and powerful and shaping and potentially damaging sex outside of marriage is. Andy Stanley said this. I like this quote. He said, we want to treat sex like it's just physical. But we eventually crash into the reality that it is indeed not just physical. And to treat it as if it is is to hurt ourselves. So you've got to understand it that way. Paul said to the Corinthians, he said in verse 13 of chapter 6, he said, you say food is made for the stomach and the stomach's for food, talking about urges and body. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. You can't, stay, you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. He's talking to people who are doing all kinds of stuff. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. Skip down to verse 18, or sorry, verse 15. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually a part of Christ, those of you who are believers? Should a man take his body, which is a part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say, the two are united into one, but the person who is joined to the Lord is one in spirit with him. Watch this. Run from sexual sin. For no other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and is given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. You were bought at a price. You must honor God with your body. Do not believe the myth that sex is just sex. Second thing is this. Don't miss God in your sexuality. I hit this at the start. Do not separate your sexuality from your Christianity. Do not separate your sexuality from your spirituality. You can't anyway. But God actually made sex to be something enjoyed between a man and a woman who are married before him openly. And if your sexual relationship causes you to hide from God, you aren't thinking rightly about sex in the first place. To separate sex and God not only detaches you from the significance of sex, it opens you up to see sex outside of how God designed it to operate. When we approach sex as something to hide from, to hide from God, this leads us down a path of destruction. Sex is something done in full view of God. It is not shameful. Do not hide it from him. Final thought is this, and I'll wrap up with this. I, I could, I, I'm emotional when I think about the damage that has been done in this area to people, whether it's by your own mistakes or whether it's by things that have been done to you. Um, I wanted to end with good news. And that's this, let God deal with your sexual brokenness. Here's the thing. Every one of us have mindsets and things that we look at sex incorrectly, perversions they're called. You know, the church has done a terrible job saying that's perverted and that's not. No, all the way that you heterosexual guys lust after another woman, that's perverted too. It's not just, you know, some, some Christian churches you'll hear like it's just homosexuality that's this perversion. No, any sex outside of marriage is perversion. We have to let God give him dominion of our mindset and let him reclaim that space and how we think. And if we are habitually acting out in that area outside of how God designed, I suggest you're not thinking right about it. And you're short-selling what it actually is. 
Let God deal with your sexual brokenness. Some of us have made huge mistakes in that area. Your choice. You have a sexual history with some people that you, you, you can't even get past anymore. Like you just carry it with you everywhere. When you hear the person, when you hear someone with their name, it makes, it makes this, all this stuff come up. I want to encourage you to let God deal with that. Like some of you are still soul tied to someone that you were connected with sexually at some point. And here's the good news. God can break that off. He can free you. And then there's some people here, and my heart goes out to you. Because it wasn't something you did. It was something that was done to you. I want to say God can heal any wound. Let me read something. I want to end with a story. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 7. Look what Paul says. It's good news. Sorry, verse 9. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin, all of us, whether you've acted on it or thought of it, Jesus at one point said, any man who thinks of a woman lustfully has, has lied with her in his heart. We are all prone to this. Those who indulge in sexual sin, or worship idols, or commit adultery, or male prostitutes, or practice homosexuality, or thieves, or greedy people, or drunkards, or abusive, or cheap people. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Here it is. This is so hopeful. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. I love that. One word, one name can heal your mind, can break you free from the past, can even heal wounds that have been done to you. I saw it this week. We were here, I'm sorry I'm going a little long, I just I want to hit this, but we were here when, uh, last Sunday night at the Valley Campus, we had worship, and it was a beautiful time, and the Holy Spirit was moving, and God was clearly doing stuff in the room. We broke off into prayer groups, and it was one of those times where you didn't have to, like, work hard to get people to participate. Everyone just wanted to just do what God wanted to do. It was beautiful. And two ladies in the group I was coincidentally in, both came forward and said, I have some like history I need God to heal. We prayed for them and it was such a moving thing. And one of the ladies in particular came up to me at the end of the service and she had her phone out. She said, I'm texting my abuser and I'm going to forgive him. And she did. Years of baggage. Years of pain, years of bitterness, gone in a moment. Jesus can do that. She uh, emailed me this week. <sighs> the worship service, Pastor Brent, the worship service is one of the most profound moments of my life. And I'm so blessed that God used you to speak to me. 
Your words allowed me to be brave and to feel God's love from his blanket of safety. She wrote me this. Being able to send you a message, being able to send a message to my rapist was very freeing. Someone very close to her. The abuse lasted from age 8 to 16. My message was sent with love, acceptance, and forgiveness. There is such a profound feeling of peace. There's still much healing to do with regards to my past, but God continues to show me his grace and unconditional love for me, his daughter. I have not heard from, from him, and I may never hear from him, but I truly feel peaceful and sound. It is well with my soul. And there are not enough words in the English language to express my feelings. I do, not, I do know, however, that this moment is being used to show me who I am in Christ, and it is awesome. Jesus can heal any wound in that area. They are the most damaging, devastating wounds that most human beings go through, and he can heal it. So what I want to do is I want to invite you to stand and just keep the sanctity of this moment. You guys in at East as well. And I just felt like, and I can feel the Holy Spirit in here. I'm partially emotional. I get emotional when he presses in. I can't control it. But this is such a private thing, and I'm not calling anybody out. But you guys in at East as well, I just want to pray for you where you're at. It doesn't have to be anything crazy. I just want you to turn that part of yourself over to him. Maybe some of you need to, need to repent. You're living in an area of sin, and you need to say, God, I confess this to you. It's wrong. You called it sin, and it is what it is, and I'm turning to you. Give me grace. He has grace for you today. Maybe some of you are here, and you've just been carrying this sexual baggage behind you for years, and today's the day God says you can let that go. And he has freedom for you. And then for some of you, you need healing. There is a deep wound. Maybe you did it to yourself. Maybe someone did it to you. But I believe that when you call upon Jesus, his grace is able to heal any wound. And so I just want to pray for those of you who you fall in that category, in whatever category that is, and I want to pray for you. And I want to ask God's grace to rush over you and that you, like Paul said, will be cleansed and made holy and made right with God. And you leave here a free, new, brand new person. The old you is gone, a new day has begun. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today. First, we just, for what we talked about, we thank you, God, that you made sexuality. And Lord, forgive us for the ways that we have allowed the, the mind of the world to dictate how we think about it. Father, first and foremost, would you transform our minds? Would you renew how we think about this in the first place? Would we realize that it belongs to you, that it is of you, that it's not dirty, it's not shady, it's not taboo. It's something you created to be enjoyed. And then, God, we ask that you would help, help us just live it out in the context of marriage. For those who are married, Lord, we take it seriously. And, God, for those who aren't, we thank you for grace today that you are more than enough to satisfy. Lord, we thank you for the season of singleness. Lord, we thank you for the season of togetherness. Maybe there's a couple here who just, they can't for some reason. God, we thank you for the grace you're giving them today. 
And God, we ask in this area of our sexual brokenness, and every one of us have some story to tell, ways we've fallen short, things we've been addicted to, things that we've uh, participated in, maybe practices that we've just done time and time again that have been against your will. God, we repent. We ask that you would forgive us. Forgive us for dictating the terms of sexuality. And God, would you redefine what it looks like in our minds? God, I pray that grace would rush in right now to the one who's addicted maybe to the one who's stepped out, maybe to the one who's really messed up. God, we just ask your grace, rush in. There is no sin great enough. There's no sin greater than the love of Jesus. We thank you for it. There's great sin, but your grace is greater, and we thank you for it. God, I pray for the one who's here today, and they know who they are. I pray, God, that as they've been carrying this baggage of maybe bad decisions or ways they were taken advantage of or people they slept with, in Jesus' name, we break the power of that in the name of Jesus. Sin has no hold on those who belong to you. We free them up and we bind that old lie up in Jesus' name and we just speak freedom, a new beginning in Jesus' name. And God, we thank you today that there is healing in the name of Jesus, that there is no wound too deep that you can't heal. There's nothing too broken you can't fix. So God, I thank, I thank you today that in Jesus' name, as we pray and as we sing, Lord, you are healing people. You're healing old, old wounds. People are going to forgive their abusers. People are going to let go of past hurts and wounds. Things that have shaped people for decades in Jesus' name are going to be released right now. We pray this and we declare it in the healing name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. I know we ran a little long, but I don't want to rush this. It's so important. Um, the band's going to lead, and if you want to come up and pray, I know this is personal stuff, but I believe God would want to move in you. And if you just want to come up and kneel, some of us will come around you and pray. We'd be happy to do that as the band leads. But just reach out to God. And there's fresh grace. The Bible says his mercies are new every morning. Some of you might have screwed up before you got here. There's mercy, new mercy for you. Take it. Let's sing.